Swag like a shopper than a rape pit. Yeah. Let's be clear if you bully back in the day. I got a middle finger for you. Welcome to the rape. 90% of wardrobe is anime. Bit of game, gravities, and a cosplay. With my heart on my sleeve. Literally, hugs if you cried at 133. Yeah. The heaven stays on love making. Hikari in the streets, put a kage in the sheets. Say what you want, I look amazing. But if you're hitting, you can get the bow. Check a bow. One nurse trash is another one's one piece. Keeps me at one piece. And uh, uh, at one piece. Uh, got me through great middle, high school, and college. Stay wavy, feel as a trip. Yeah, not my well, I'm happy to have Aaron, number one Bakugo apologist on the podcast with us today. And Aaron, please plug your podcast while you were here. And we'll have another plug at the end before we wrap up. Yeah. Uh, you're not wrong, though. I am the number one Bakugo apologist. Um, he's my favorite gremlin I can relate to. But that has very little, if almost just very little to do with my podcast, Girls Talk Comics, which can be found on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts now. And <laughs> uh, we are on Facebook as Girls Talk Comics LFK and Twitter as Girls Talk Comic One. And I am bitter about not having that S. Because you're <laughs> number one. We are number one. That's why you get- got the one. I should get that hat, like the silly straws. Number one, <laughs> SpongeBob it up. I, I support this. Thank you, thank you. Well, but also, thank you for having me here today. Thank you for coming on. We could uh, always use another uh, brain on here to help us from meandering too much. <laughs> to compliment me and Ashita's half brains that make just one between the two of us. <laughs> Um, you act like I also don't ramble on my podcast. <laughs> I mean, that's like the kind of the point, though, right? I mean, like, that's true. We started podcasts so people could listen to us ramble, right? That's Yeah, exactly. Kind of so thing. what we're going to ramble about today. Now, I don't know if you guys want to stick with just Miyazaki films or just Ghibli films or both i was gonna ask that that's i was wondering that if we're like defining ghibli as like do movies miyazaki made outside ghibli count do ghibli movies not made by miyazaki count like what's i am personally and this is just my thought process uh that we can just group the two together obviously there are some that exist without the other, but talking about any film that falls under either of those two categories, I think is fair game to me anyway. I was kind of figuring like everything, even like maybe like kind of like semi adjacent, like similar stuff. Like if, I mean, if we got on like on a Mary and the witch's flower or something like that, it wouldn't really be that big of a deal to like step outside of it, even though we could probably like, you know, focus mainly on the stuff that people think of when they hear or Miyazaki. I'm so glad you mentioned Mary and the Witch's Flower because I was about to say that being denied talking about that would break my heart and <laughs> that I also just know Ghibli as Ghibli without paying attention a lot to which ones specifically is Miyazaki, you know, which ones are his students and all the animators that learned and worked from him and which ones are 
other directors. Fair enough. So. I, I'm not going to lie. I cheated. And before we started the podcast, I have one list up that's Ghibli films and one list up that is Miyazaki films. So <laughs> no matter no matter which way it went, you could just put one up on the screen and be like, OK, this, yeah. is, this is what I can talk yep. about. I like to think of that as prepared. Thank you. <laughs> that is the behind the curtain research. That's right. That yeah. we put into this podcast very diligently. You know, there you go. Uh, the audience kind of kind of owes you now. I feel like since you're like putting all your secrets out there for them to learn from. That's true. I, well, you know what? Sharing information is direct praxis. So yeah, if they start their own <laughs> podcast now, they can always look back on this and say, "Ah, research is good." <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one thing I did want to ask both of you is, what do you think makes the this style of film so? special because obviously if you mention either miyasaki or even ghibli people even people who view those movies as overrated still hold some form of reverence towards them and so what why do you think that is um should i go first or you want to answer first or you can totally go first okay so um i think there's obviously a whole whole lot like we could probably each of us could probably spend like an hour just explaining what's special about those movies but i think one thing that really uh first going in one of the first things that always captures me about those about those movies um is the attention to detail that's like the first thing that grabs me before i'm thinking about like the themes and the characters the story which is all great as well but like all the little things that they pay attention to, like when the character adjusts the back of their shoe when they put them on and just like little things like that. Like it, it's like you could almost watch a Ghibli movie on mute and still enjoy it just because of the like amount of little details they work into every single scene, the things people are doing in the background and all that. And it's, that's one thing I really enjoy about them. Just the amount of effort that goes into every little thing that's done. Yeah. They, they really don't waste any time or space in the movie. They try and put as much detail in it and as possible. And they really yeah, think it out. It's it's almost like they actually have someone go through it like, hey, put your shoes on and walk outside. I just want to watch a couple times <laughs> and make sure we get this right. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. What about for you, Aaron? I, my list, I have a list. It's a short list. So don't freak out. But I think it's only three items. Uh, I think the soundtrack. Yes. All the music plays a really important role for me. It's really just atmospheric and builds everything. Uh, and when I think of the movies that I really love, I think of the scenes that have really dynamic music. It, the songs are also the ones I really love, too. I think the pacing is really important. Sure, they, they do pay attention to detail, but I remember hearing something, I think Miyazaki's perspective, which is that you let them breathe a little bit. So instead yeah. of it always being action-packed, it has action and sentiment and just moments of stillness where you really just kind of get the feel of the daily life or just kind of realness of the character that they're creating and i think about that in spirited away 
when they're just chilling, eating rice balls and cleaning. And you're like, yeah, this is life. I get yeah. this. I can yeah. connect with this. Um, I think the caricature of the characters, like the big eyes, just the artistic style is really easy to connect with too because uh, it makes really dynamic and recognizable character designs. It's a major part and major signature. And I think because it's kind of softer and round and bigger, it appeals to a maybe younger, gentler, softer side for people, a nostalgic kind no, it's of a, world. definitely a very warming sentiment to see that kind of like you said, round and soft aesthetics that are used. And, and it's when you say something like that, immediately what comes to my mind are two things. And it's the tears, the classic Ghibli tears mm-hmm. that just well yeah. up and get all bubbly and big. And I also think there's several scenes in a few of their movies where you can see the hair rise up on the back of someone's neck. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. that's immediately what I think of as well. I also think of the food, but I'm also a really food-driven person. And <laughs> so, like, the bigness of it just has this kind of comfort. Like, there's just something soft and friendly and maybe toy-like about the food that yeah, just looks full, makes me feel full and safe. I don't know. I'm getting too very emotional about it, but this is... <laughs> Yeah, well, when you were going over your list, the uh, one of the things that comes to my mind, just thinking of those, uh, not all three points, but the last two, uh, one of the things I thought of is in Howl's Moving Castle when he's cooking, when, like, Calcifer's the fire he's cooking on, he's, like, making bacon and eggs. Like, I've always loved just that little moment there. Just looking at it, it's like, I don't know, there's something really realistic about it, but also really fantastic about it. And it's just like, I don't know, I really just like that scene. It's another one of those things they just kind of throw in. There's no reason they had to show how cooking breakfast, but, like, getting to watch that, it just it does have, like, that comforting feel. There's something very, like, disarming about most of the Ghibli movies. That uh, kind of ties into what I was going to say. I think, for me, the one thing that always draws me into these films is the romanticization of everyday life and hey both of you kind of touched on this in your own ways but every single film that whether it's Miyazaki or ghibli i think really hammers home that these finer details and moments in our lives whether they be like matt urashita just said you know cooking breakfast or I think of like what Aaron when Aaron mentioned they're just eating rice cakes together and spirited away. They have those moments that not nothing is really happening per se, like both of you have mentioned. But at the same time, we can relate to that stillness. And in a time when I think things are so frantic, it's really nice to just be able to enjoy that peace of mind and be able to collect our thoughts. Yeah, I agree. Based on what you're saying, I'm going to very much recommend uh, 
Miyazaki binging, movie binging as part of therapy for my clients. <laughs> yes, like, I think that's good. But but with the with the exception that they do not uh, watch. Um, oh, Princess Mononoke. No, that one's fine. Um, oh goodness, oh goodness, Grave of the Fireflies. Oh, oh yes. Okay, yeah. Yes. That one I believe okay. is not is not a Miyazaki movie. I think it's that not. It is a Ghibli film. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I should just have them watch Spirited Away and just talk about the development of the characters across the story and like how they became more responsible and centered and grow. But we haven't gotten to that part of this episode yet. So <laughs> well, so that does kind of tie into something I wanted to bring up. It's not a... Uh, I mean, I'll put my own thoughts into it, obviously, but this is kind of a of a idea I picked up from someone else uh, as a YouTuber named Big Joel talked about this. Um, but he was talking about the ambivalence of uh, Miyazaki movies, and uh, he, he spent a lot of time on Spirited Away. And one of the things he was talking about is how all the characters in it, um, it, you know, there's this idea in, like, fiction and movies, books, whatever, where you kind of, like, give villains a driving idea so that people can like understand them. Like, you know, like Killmonger is a good example. Um, mm -hmm. But in Miyazaki, it's, it's very different. It's almost like no one really is a villain. Like it's really hard to pin down whether someone is good or bad and spirited away really seems to like, I mean like almost every character and you know, you have a no face who like just turns to a giant monster at one point, but then other times is just chill. Like it's like based on his surroundings. Uh, Haku is a good example because like he seems like one of the heroes of the movie, but there's also parts where he's just like in the shadows doing shady stuff. And it's, it's, um, it's really an interesting thing that happens in those movies. It, it also, uh, my favorite Miyazaki movies, princess Monoki. And I think like lady Aboshi would be a great example of that even though uh, she might trend a little more to being considered a villain. You know, she's very heroic in what she's doing. She's just kind of going about it the wrong way. She's helping all these people who are, like, disenfranchised and, like, lost to the world, and she's just trying to help her, her village succeed, basically. I think that's a really... That's a really cool point. I never thought of it as ambivalence... Uh, so that's a awesome and new perspective for me. It is a part of storytelling that I really, really admire from the stories. Being able to make just the concept or the tension or the relationship existing between characters a villain rather than the villains themselves. Yeah. And it's kind of a new level of storytelling. You're still allowed to empathize with all of the characters. Howl's Moving Castle is another example of that. Uh, that the same kind of relationships influencing our perspective and who's really a bad guy and is anybody a bad guy? Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah uh, one of the but things... it's obviously what just when goals are in contention, or you know, you're you're automatically against people because you have different per aims or perspectives or you had a bad interaction and so it's it's 
cool. It allows yeah. for redemption as well. Yeah, one of the things he brought up actually uh, when I was watching that that uh, about was about how because like in Howl's Moving Castle, there's like a war going on. It's not really important to the story at all, but there's like a war going on the whole movie, and uh, yeah, and they never really like Howl's avoiding it, but they never really get into whether it's like because he's anti-war or if he's just a coward. Like it's just kind of up in the air for us to decide on our own why mm-hmm. he's avoiding the war. They do well, never say it straight out, I think. Yeah, it's like a lot of things are like that. It's kind of just, just the, the story is almost told in this way to where it's just like whatever, however you take it, you know, you tell yourself the story almost when it comes down to a lot of these details because, like, it, it's up to you. It's not, you know, what do the characters think of this? It's what do you think of this? Well, and I think that's something that a lot of these films do a good job of is at least making you if not for only a moment empathize with characters who at, at some point in the story you were led to dislike at first based around perspective yeah and i think the witch from i can't remember her name off the top of my head because i'm terrible with yubaba names. is it yubaba no 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 from a uh, house moving castle oh okay sorry who uh, gets transfigured because uh, obviously throughout most of the film you're led to hate this woman. And of course that obviously her being transfigured doesn't necessarily take away the hatred that you, not even hatred, but more of disdain or dislike that you might feel towards this character, but it makes you temporary, if nothing else, sympathize with them. And, I think that's one of the more extreme examples. Uh, funny that you mentioned Spirited Away. That was the other one that I was going to go to. And it's when all of you Baba's henchmen get turned into, you know, bugs and animals and her baby gets turned into the mouse and yeah. all of these creatures and people that were at one point obstacles to our characters have now become companions of sorts through trials and tribulations that they kind of brought on themselves. Yes. So (laughs) I totally had a thought and I'm trying to build it in a way that makes sense. Also, I think the character you were thinking of was witches of the waste. Yes. That that was the character. Yes. Thank you. Yes. You're welcome. Um, Spirited Away, though, is a really good... When you were talking, I was thinking about how, like, the minions, when they get transformed, they have they were cursed because they wronged somebody. And it's Sin's entire arc is trying to redeem her parents uh, and trying to pay back what her parents stole. And it's really interesting how I think the moral of that... <laughs> story for me at least is make sure you keep your word and make the proper transactions you know like it's in a literal sense too with the transaction of her name yes yeah but she had to pay back what was stolen and the minions had to journey to kind of redeem themselves and 
seek forgiveness, return what was stolen. Um, same with no face in a way. Same with no face. So it's very, that one is, a lot of them are about relationships too. I mean, even uh, Princess Mononoke is about maintaining the relationship between nature and industrialism. So, well, and even to a similar but not quite the same extent, I would say Nosk of the Valley of the Wind kind of brushes into that same area as well. Obviously, it's not as focused on industrialism as Princess Mononoke is. But that relationship with nature, and I, I think Nausicaa is more of what war does to nature rather than uh, just industrialism and what that how that impacts the nature around us. But I, I think the relationship between the two is still very similar in both films. Hmm. I don't know if I'd agree that Nausicaa isn't isn't as focused on it. Maybe not in such a literal manner, but I would almost say Nausicaa, Nausicaa takes an even more hardline stance on like industrialization versus nature. But I think, I think both those movies do honestly, when I watch those movies, the message I get like, <laughs> it's not so simple. He tells it in a very complex way, but it can really be boiled down to just like what we're doing to this planet is bad and we need to stop. Like right. I think that I think the Miyazaki has a very, very strong ecological uh, stint to him. That's like I think that that's kind of like one of his main driving factors in his art. I think that that's kind of like his big thing. That's how I well, take it anyway. Maybe there's a little more nuance to it, but like I, I just when I watch that stuff, I get the message of just like I do not fuck with what we are doing on this planet at all. <laughs> Right. And I, I agree. I I was taking it more of a literal sense of what's being represented. Got in both you. Films. Yeah, that's that's absolutely fair then. Yeah. Since one happens uh, literally in a forest. <laughs> <laughs> However, one film that's on the Ghibli side, but not from Miyazaki is Takahata's Pompoko. I don't know if either of you have seen that one. It's uh, it's on my like immediate watch list. Like I'll probably have watched it within the next week or so, but I have not. Aaron? I don't think I have. Okay. Cool was... with giving a plot summary. Okay. Well, so first, let me forewarn you. It is one of the strangest movies I've ever watched, but in a good way. Um, I'm sh- and also, I will say you've probably seen gifts from and, it. And but... don't don't skimp out on the massive testicles when you're telling us about. The yes, movie. that's that's exactly what I was about to say. <laughs> so for those seen who some of know, this. <laughs> Bompoko is about Tanukis, and Tanukis are essentially raccoon dogs that lived in Japan. Um, however, they were, first of all, known for having, like Ishida said, massive testicles, but they were also magical ones. So they can stretch them out and use them as parachutes, so on and so forth. So obviously, there's a bit there's not even a bit there is quite a bit of humor and just absurdity to the film but also when that kind of thing isn't happening it's essentially about how cities have started to take over forests and landscapes and it pushed wild animals out and how 
that ended up pushing the tanuki as a species to extinction and it's really i don't know it possibly obviously the other two films that we've mentioned being nasca and princess mononoke deal with the themes of like you mentioned industrialization and i said war and how that affects our environment but i think pompoco does it in such a more literal sense where you see around all the tanuki all of these characters their world is slowly closing in around them and how they're running out of space to live because of it. It's actually pretty tragic. I have watched half of this movie. So we are in the, the three of us are in three different stages. (laughs) (laughs) I remember a scene where when the forest was starting to be taken over and turned into residential areas, the the different tribes of the Tanuki had this very dramatic samurai battle. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> this, this isn't talking about the message. This is talking about the presentation. If there's one thing I loved about this movie, it's that they looked more like raccoon dogs when they were not doing human things. But then they would give them that complete Ghibli style of animation and and dress them up in different outfits anytime they would do interaction. And I love that transition. They're either just running through the wild or all of a sudden they're samurai or priestesses and priests or (laughs) and children. And it's just, I really kind of enjoyed that presentation because it did make the characters easy to empathize with um, and kind of just understanding what their struggles were and how it would look like for humans if our environment was being limited and we were forced to share territory with new people theoretically of course right very much so i think that's a great example I have been thinking about that samurai scene a lot, though, since I only watched half of the movie. (laughs) Which, I only watched half because it's about two hours long, and by the time I got an hour into it, it was, I think, about one in the morning, and I had to step away. Um, And I just haven't gone back. But that samurai scene, it lingers. It sticks with you. Sticks with you. It's it's a good film. It, it definitely, like I said, it has it strikes the most absurd angle possible while still managing to be heartfelt and sincere at the same time, which I don't think a lot of media can really hit all of those nerves at the same time. No. Seeing it more and more, I think, as a media gear, geared towards young adults or children, and I think they get away with it because of the stylized art, like the nature of animation mm-hmm. and being forced to be geared towards children. Um, I, I would agree it's with It's creative that. writing, yeah. It's just creative storytelling and writing. And it keeps the message of hope. 
resonating just being grim, dark, <laughs> sad fest. So. Oh yeah. Well, and that's kind of similar. Um, oh no. Uh, we are currently experiencing technical problems. Please sit by. Drip, 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 it's also the rating I get on keeping things going all right. Okay, so we are recording again. Um, the last thing we were talking about was massive raccoon balls. Oh. <laughs> tied that up. <laughs> it's, you know, my mic probably broke because during that whole thing, I wanted to make a joke about how that movie just sounds like it ripped off over the hedge. And my mic probably broke on purpose to stop me from saying that. You know, I don't blame your mic then. I'm just <laughs> kidding. I'm just joking. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, when Ghibli remade Over the Hedge. Yes. What, ten years okay. prior. Honestly, so, Kenny, when you said, when you tweeted about people calling open world games Breath of the Wild clones, mm-hmm. somebody said that to me about the new Pokemon Arceus. Our yep. Arceus game, they're like, yeah, it's just a Breath of the Wild kind of game, and I li- was like, no, fuck you, it's like Grand Theft Auto Five. <laughs> <laughs> that came out first. Like, he's like, what? What? I was like, I'm so sorry, you just stepped on a landmine. You didn't even know you was there. Like, which is really like kind of crazy. All Skyrim clones. I think I always imagined that when people said that they meant it was also in the Breath of the Wild art style because, like, I can't imagine that people had not seen an open world game before Breath of the Wild. I'm like, these have been out for years, guys. Like, yeah, all the games are this now. <laughs> I should, you know, we should really start throwing like really obscure titles out. Like, yeah, this is a PS1 Gex game clone. <laughs> it's like that Gex was kind clone. of open, Matt. Yeah, it's a Gex clone. It's uh, a clone a- of. 101 Dalmatians. Near Automata is actually just a a clone of the Super Nintendo game Metal Warriors, obviously. Obviously. Man, I got Everything's tell a you, Dragon Warrior clone. I, I, I don't think I even know what Metal Warriors is, and I know some obscure games, so I don't know where... It's, okay. So, if I could pick any one game to just immediately own without any context or question, it would be Metal Warriors. It's a... This is a bit of a tangent, so I'm sorry. But it is a side-scroller game that came out for the Super Nintendo that has some of the most beautiful pixel art that I've ever seen. And you pilot a mech through the level, and you have a beam saber and a blaster on the mech and the, i mean that's it's like a, you're good dude that's i understand right. now why it's the best game <laughs> that right. sounds like the shitty clone of that japanese cowboy bebop game we played at the store once that was really bad i wanted to buy that but i never got to it's i'm glad okay. it turned out to be bad because then i can waste my money i feel uh, like weren't you there when we tried it no we nope. watched a video did we watch a video remember 
I watched a video with somebody, I thought. Maybe it was me. I don't know. That's been two years. I don't know. All side-scrollers are Rayman knockoffs. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> this Cowboy Bebop game you guys played was just came out two years ago? No, it was no. for PS1. Okay, I remember that. Though. I remember. Wasn't it called Knocking on Heaven's Door or something like that? I, I don't know. It was remember. Japanese. <laughs> yeah, it was like a Japanese import, so it was in Japanese. Right on. I don't okay. So, I had one other question for you, because, like I said, Ashita and I made a goal to have questions to bring to the table, and I have a very important one for both of you. Okay. Which character would you like to have tea time with from any Ghibli or Miyazaki film, and why? Tea time. Or coffee, you know, either. either No, 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 I just... I didn't think that that's where the question was going to go. And it kind of <laughs> completely changes what my answer would be. Like, huh? I know it's, it's an interesting one. So while you guys think about it, uh, I will give my answer if that's okay with you. Cause I have two of them. That's awesome. I already have uh, an answer too. go for it. Perfect. So my first one is the Baron from The Cat Returns. Because I think he would have some delightful stories to tell about the Cat Kingdom. And I feel like he would just be a really great person to meet up for, you know, an hour or two and just have a nice chat with over a warm beverage. He's also somebody I would love to have tea or coffee with, but for different reasons, and I'll explain later. Keep going. Okay, and then my other one is, let's see, what was her name? Um, I feel like a terrible person now because I can't remember. Oh, Ursula, that's what it was. Ursula from Kiki's Delivery Service, the lady artist who lives out in the woods. I think she would be really fun to chat with as well because she's obviously quite what's the word i'm looking for um oh what would you call an artist who's slightly out there eccentric Um, yes that's exactly the word i was looking for she's very eccentric and obviously she lives out in the woods and talks to birds so i think she would also be quite interesting to chat with yeah those are my two great choices great choices um so i would like to go next if that's okay go for it okay um the baron is also a choice for me he would have a lot of stories but i will not deny that i am a romantic person at heart and i feel like it would just be charming it'd be sweet he's a very charming individual especially with his voice actor being carrie Yes, this is very true. <laughs> uh, but, you know, just be nice to be kind of like treated as like a respectable lady. <laughs> Coffee or tea date and then just move on and get back to my life. Um, so that would be really kind of thrilling for the novelty. I think Muta, also from The Cat Returns and Whisper of the Heart, would be really great as well. <laughs> But less 
coffee more sake. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, if we're talking who we're drinking sake with, that's a that's a whole other question there. I I you know what? I'll I'll stick with Baron for for my tea date or tea time, but I I will definitely swap to sake first a little because I feel like she's probably a sake drinker as well. So I'm gonna copy your idea if that's okay. That's cool. We could do it coffee and sake because it it doesn't rhyme. I tried. I'm sorry. A for effort. You did your best. Yeah. I would. I could totally make those words rhyme. I think that the it's really it's all about vowel sounds and you have the I E. So really, it's it's fine. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. No, no problem. <laughs> I'm waiting for this uh, to drop on a, a track soon. Okay, Ashita. I mean, so here's the thing: is actually like my some of my friends I rap with used to make fun of me for constantly rhyming Aki words because there's so many like anime right like Paki, Saki, like Kurosaki. Like there's so many different things that like constantly. There's probably at least twenty songs in which I go on like a multiple bar rhyme of that rhyme but uh but anyway so uh i know i said it would be a completely different question if it's tea or sake but i think my answer for both is actually the same so i lied and it's not one of my (laughs) it's not one of my favorite characters i just think that she would be awesome to sit down and just like have a conversation with i feel like i would learn a lot even though i don't necessarily agree with her on everything and that's lady eboshi i feel like i would walk away from that conversation smarter than i was and uh and i think she just has like a lot of like wisdom to impart even though it would all need to be taken with a bit of a what's the grain of rice with with a grain of rice (laughs) yeah (laughs) but yeah yeah that's who i would and and i would i would drink tea with her to like learn stuff i would drink sake with her because i think it would just be a blast like oh yeah (laughs) you want to go out and shoot the fire gun Hell yeah, I want to go out and shoot the fire gun. Are you kidding me? Lady Eboshi throws down. Like, let's be real. Like, she's, oh, yeah. she's with the other women in that village, and she's just like, let's get fucked up, girls. Let's go. I know she would drink me under the table, too, if we're if we're doing alcohol. 100%. Like, it would, I would just be dead, and she'd be, like, still basically sober, like, get up. Stop, stop being a little bitch. Get up. You see a, a montage of Lady Eboshi break out the sake, and you hear... Let's go, girls, in the background. <laughs> so, best story that I've ever heard from a woman who... She w- was in the military, but this was the best survival story for her. And, like, showing up all the men that she was working with. Uh, and I see Lady Boshi doing this. She would just bring... The woman was advising us that if you really want to show off, just always have your own bottle of vodka. Just fill it with water. Don't share it with anybody. Oh, no. But you just drink everybody under the table because you're just drinking water. <laughs> <laughs> and I can imagine Lady Eboshi also doing that where she's just like, yep, this is sake and it's just water. It's <laughs> like, fun, fun, I trust fun any fact. of you. Fun fact, in 2014, I did a uh, a music video with my friend BB, and in it, there's a scene where I am chugging an entire fifth of gin, and that is absolutely what is happening in that scene. That is a bottle oh. full of water. <laughs> yep. It's the only way to survive that, I feel like. Yeah. 
That's a or, trick for listeners. Especially, yeah, especially <laughs> since it's like clear alcohol. Like, I mean, I couldn't chug mm-hmm. a bottle of any like full 40% liquor, but if I was going to, it would need to be something brown, like gin or vodka. I would just like instantly mm-hmm. vomit, just like, oh, I can't oh. do this. <laughs> Flashing back to college and I don't want to be there. <laughs> yeah, don't don't be like 19-year-old ethereal and drink almost a liter of vodka in one night just just drink water instead folks or at least not vodka (laughs) yeah i know that it might surprise people with the like the socialist tinge of this podcast that we don't support vodka drinking but unfortunately we don't (laughs) yes this is a not not for me anyway after that experience yeah vodka and a mixed drink Uh, i'm fine I'm yeah. fine with a fancy fruity cocktail with a vodka base, but like on its own. Oh, that's true. Mm. I can do like a vodka and Red Bull. I would prefer to have like a, a cognac and Red Bull, but like vodka and Red Bull's passable. It's if we're drinking it straight, no, nothing clear for me straight. That's just oh, same. Too much. One of my favorite drinks uh, that I used to have at this amazing horrible college sports bar near where i went to school which is not where i currently live so uh anyway it was bubblegum vodka and sprite oh my goodness i know that sounds super weird that sounds like it could be potentially very delicious though it tasted like double bubble it was amazing Yeah. Yeah. So if I typically I have a whiskey on the rocks, it's my go-to. But if I if I'm gonna mix it with another beverage, it's actually with Sprite. So it helps mm. cover up a little bit of the bitterness, but you still get lots of taste to the whiskey and some nice citrus to give it a little bit of an accent there. It's like the seven and seven concept, even though you're not using yes. seven and seven same same exactly. flavor profile. I like, I'm a cognac drinker. That's my favorite. I'll drink it mixed with stuff. I'll drink it with just ice. I'll drink shots of it. I don't actually it. know what, cog, what cognac is. Cognac, cognac? is... Uh, Smooth AF. Yeah, and it is it's it is derived from another kind of liquor. I want to say maybe it's brandy? I think so. Yeah, but it's made with like a particular type of fruit i don't know exactly oh look i just know that the bottle says cognac on it and i like the stuff i don't (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i think it's it's like a brandy from a certain part of france i want to say like the cognac region it's exactly what it is yeah it's a high quality brandy yeah distilled in cognac in western france yeah okay so there you go that's some good stuff right there there we go (laughs) it is really good actually i don't really drink that much anymore um too many nights i can't remember um but i was a tequila gal that was that was my fave for a while drew stuff or beer Mm. i get really uh I'm one of those people that when like the alcohol really hits me at like a, like when I get really drunk, my thing is like, I want to talk about stuff people don't normally want to talk about like that. I'm that guy who's like, okay, which one of you fuckers wants to defend capitalism? (laughs) 
We're discussing religion tonight, kids. And they're just like, oh, God, Matt, why are you? <laughs> You've drunk it's too funny much. <laughs> because Aaron gets the same way, too. Subjects I do. Like <laughs> I do. But also, like, really friendly. Like, I'm, I try to be friendly anyway. But whenever I get that messed up, I try. To, I, there have been times where it's like I'll cuddle somebody and I'll be like, let's destroy everything. <laughs> <laughs> like... The mental health system is fucked up in the current process. We should really improve it. Let's burn it down and also cuddle. <laughs> and that's praxis. Everybody gets a hug and a lecture. Let's go. Was it, was it Emma Goldman that said, if your revolution doesn't involve cuddling, I don't want to be involved? Maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm paraphrasing that a little. I don't it's actually... true, though. It's the first time I've heard that one. I think the the Whatever. actual quote is uh, the the actual quote is uh, if you can't dance to it it's no uh, it's no revolution of mine or something like it's something like that. it's about dancing not cuddling. I like your version more, Matt. Yeah, <laughs> I'm down for the cuddle part of the revolution. <laughs> anyway, so on the Miyazaki <laughs> and Ghibli part of the who what podcast. what were we talking about? <laughs> Another character that would also be fun to drink with, coffee or sake, uh, Lynn from Spirited Away. I had that same thought, too. I I was, yeah. Wait, which one's Lynn? Who's that? Lynn is the one with the lizard, the dried lizard. The main oh, worker friend. okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I can see that. I feel yeah. like she'd be the kind of person who, you know... Back before Rona times, if you got off at late night shift and it's a Friday night, you're like, hey, let's go grab a brewski next door and, you know, just hang out for an hour. It'd be all for that. Yeah. Yeah, wasn't she voiced by the woman who played Meg in yes. Hercules? Yeah. That is correct. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Such a good voice actress. Oh. Mm-hmm. Now when I think of Meg voice actress, though, I think of Hades. Ooh, yes. Are they voiced also by the same a good person? Voice actress. No. Oh, okay, okay. But but Meg from that game just has a very unique voice. Oh, the game Hades. I got you. Okay. Yes. Okay. Now I follow. I still need to play that. I think that uh, I think it's downloaded on our Switch, but I haven't played it yet. It is very good. I would highly I also- recommend it like that it can be related to Miyazaki and Ghibli because the voice actress voiced a character of the same name of a character so there's there's the link folks see six degrees of Miyazaki (laughs) (laughs) I would that would be a fun game to play I would be down for that same (laughs) we can connect Catwoman to Miyazaki because Anne Hathaway I watched that movie, and I suck at Dark Souls, which is by a guy named Miyazaki, just like the Miyazaki that we're talking about. Look, four degrees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> four degrees. <laughs> anyway, about Elden Ring. Um, <laughs> you brought up from software. Yeah, when is that coming out? I haven't heard that. They haven't said anything about that game in so long. It's not. Man, and I know I would suck at it, but I want it so bad. I'm just like, it makes me sad (laughs) that it's not coming ever. 
that's how I feel about Bloodborne. And you know, there's a lot of terrifying creatures in Bloodborne and apparitions, which ties back to Pompoko and the fact that the Tanuki shapeshift into terrifying forms and creatures to try and scare away humans. So there's Full a full circle. Yeah. <laughs> There's a uh, GIF that circulates all over social media every now and then of people at a drive-through movie and a giant skeleton like breaks through the movie screen. Yeah, and that's or no, I mean ghosts do that, and then there's a giant skeleton that who like breaks a traffic bridge. Both of those are from Pompoko from that sequence. Absolutely love Tanukis. They are <laughs> the like best mythological creature mythological like the whole, they're real i i know but the shape-shifting <laughs> part like no that's real the, that's real <laughs> yeah that's totally real like yeah sorry continue they use, the, they use their balls as parachute like every ball bearing creature like <laughs> that is not what a ball bearing is that's definitely <laughs> <laughs> just invented a new term there yeah it, it just i don't know they're just like the coolest things and i love the representation of them because it's always so silly wasn't there an anime that had tanuki creatures and one of them turned to a frog it was like just sad probably i don't know there's a lot of rooftop fighting uh naruto no it's more (laughs) modern day but if somebody out there is listening and knows what i'm talking about based on this very vague description there's something about a family, and one of them was a courier, and one of they had a brother who was like a sad frog who stayed as a frog. Is that uh, uh, Fallout New Vegas? That's, uh, it's not yeah. Rainbow One Half, but man, it kind of sounds like it could be. <laughs> That's true. It's, it's the new Rainbow One Third. <laughs> Rainbow Tanuki. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Rainbow Two Balls. Um, <laughs> in this, this, this is an intellectual <laughs> educational podcast we talk about raccoon dog balls and getting drunk with cartoon characters welcome to revolution and re- this, <laughs> the revolution will not be televised it will be yeah. while we're at home drinking with cartoon characters and cuddling with our friends yeah. hell yeah <laughs> every revolution every revolution should have celebration and if that means we drink with cartoon characters because we're also confined to our houses for our health um, then so be it I did want to touch on uh, I'd mentioned this to Ethereal a few times during the week but uh I had uh, read an article and also just previously had heard about, um, so Miyazaki actually used to be a Marxist. His like earliest work was all about kind of like class struggle and things like that. And Mm -hmm. uh, around the time Nausicaa came out, he kind of was like, yeah, I don't fuck with this whole Marxist thing no more. And kind of turned to a more like ecological viewpoint. One thing I thought was kind of interesting considering the turn that his films took to like being more about like nature and our relationship with it is that the reason the reason he gave for not believing in Marxism anymore was that he did not trust mankind 
because, you know, like one of the arguments against Marxism is obviously that like, you know, people are too greedy. This will never work. You know, human nature is this and that. And uh, he didn't necessarily think that uh, he didn't have the same issues with mankind that like someone defending capitalism might. He still doesn't like capitalism. Um, But more that he just he saw he started to see us as kind of a negative force on this planet. And uh, if I could get your guys' thoughts on just that subject and then maybe also... I've seen some people in, like, leftist circles accuse Miyazaki of being an eco-fascist. And what what do you two think of that accusation? Um, Aaron, if you'd like to, you can go first. Um, I... Well, this will be the first time that I've thought about it. I think one of the messages that he presents is the concept of moderation. And I I get why he wouldn't trust people and the sense of there is kind of a natural tendency for people to consume and to have. And I don't think that's, I disagree in the sense of whether or not it's evil or bad, but, um, If moderation and respecting nature is his focus and that Marxism inherently doesn't support that, then I I can agree with, I can follow his logic. I don't, I wouldn't go so far as to say he's an eco-fascist. I think his, the material he would be producing would be a little bit stronger if that was the case. Um, so I think that's a bit of a stretch. Sorry, folks. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree on that. <laughs> but the concept of moderation and even balance with nature is not, I, I think environmental components to it are very, very important. And he would not be the first person I know of who's left Marxism or even communism in some situations because it didn't capture the environment or it didn't capture race or sexuality or even gender in the way that people I have researched and respected have wanted it to. so I don't I don't fault him for leaving that. Does that make sense? Yeah, perfect sense. Okay, absolutely. Um, so from my end, I I am kind of in the same vein as you two. I don't think in any way that Miyazaki or his works at all are representative of eco fascism, because when I think of eco fascism. I, I think of, I, I don't know, maybe this isn't the correct comparison, but I think of a group like PETA who likes to use the front of being good for the environment while strong arming their way into getting what they want, even if it's not necessarily being helpful for the environment or for animals that they should be taking care of. 
I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on that comparison, but I, I think Miyazaki's style is much more of a cautionary tale and less of one that is trying to be forceful in the nature of what he's trying to say. I think he's more of just trying to make sure that he shows us a picture of what could be and what we are heading down. And even some instances, what we're currently dealing with, with the environment. Um, I know that was the first question you asked, Ishida, but what was the other one? Remind me. Um, I'm sorry. So you uh, you answered the one about what I, you thought about him being an eco-fascist. The other was kind of just... Um, <clears throat> it wasn't really so much a question, just as your general thoughts on like, the fact Miyazaki was a Marxist at one point, that he probably still holds some of those same values, you know, do you see them reflected in his work, anything like that? Just your general thoughts on the fact that he was a Marxist and then he kind of left Marxism to take a more uh, ecological stance. Right. I, I think that he still holds a lot of those values to himself, and it does show in his works. I think that it's a classic example of what Erin already touched on when she mentioned this. Of sometimes when someone doesn't feel like a party is being representative of what they believe it should be, they distance themselves from said party. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they distance themselves from those ideals or from the ideas that encapsulate that party. Yes. And I think that's more of what Miyazaki did was remove himself from the party and not necessarily remove himself from the ideals of Marxism. Yeah. And that's, uh, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking as well. And all, uh, Aaron brought up an interesting point, uh, because she mentioned that, uh, a person might, you put a line between Marxism and communism and uh, looking at it from that stance, because when he says, you know, Marxism was a mistake, the idea you kind of get is that he's leaving left leaning politics altogether. But I think it is worth noting that he specifically says Marxism. That's how he worded it. And, uh, you know, there's a whole wide range of thought on the left that doesn't necessarily fall under the umbrella of Marxism. And so I think that maybe, which I don't know, maybe he stopped thinking about politics and economics quite as much at that point or something. But he also could have just moved on to some other left-leaning. I mean, you know, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, like, Murray Bookchin, but his writings would be pretty in line with the types of things Miyazaki seems to hold dear. Um, and I agree with both of you, of course, on the eco-fascism point. I don't think it makes sense to call him an eco-fascist. Uh, for one thing, people kind of levy that at anyone that seems to talk about uh, the environment. Not not <laughs> necessarily talk about the environment, but who seems to cross over a line of not only are humans harmful, but maybe it would be good if if we didn't have as much influence, maybe on things which mm -hmm. I, I would probably agree that that can definitely go into some really dark territory that we don't want it to go into. And maybe it's a bit pedantic of me, but like, I would just say that an eco-fascist, you know, fascism by definition has like an in-group and everyone else is the out-group. And so to be an eco-fascist, you would have to be laying that issue 
at the feet of that out group. Whereas Miyazaki seems to be laying it at all our feet as a collective mm-hmm. saying, you know, we all need to do better, which to me just by definition is not eco-fascism. Well, and I think oh. poison Ivy is an eco-fascist. <laughs> Fair. That's a good comparison. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Good comparison. Um, I, I think it's the classic example of you can take two statements and both of them can be true. You know, you can take Miyazaki's point of view of we as humans need to be more respectful to the world that we live in and be kind to the earth because it is a natural being and the effects that we have on it do affect the outcome of the environment that we live in. But in the same token, we can also say, Hey, we do need to be a little bit weary that we don't go too far down that path because a lot of the people, and you saw this a lot whenever coronavirus first came out, not came Mm -hmm. out, but first started up, where people were trying to say, oh, now that everyone's staying home, everything's starting to clear up and so on and so forth, which was not the case, by the way. So if anyone believed that, that's not true. Because a lot of the large scale and industrial plants were still running. And so it didn't, I mean, it changed it a little bit, but not significantly to the point where that point could be made accurately. And that that's just the other point that I think we have to be careful of is someone who is actually an eco-fascist would say, well, people are a disease and so on and so forth. And don't get me wrong, obviously, Miyazaki kind of delves into that at points with Princess Mononoke. But I, I think it's... Yeah, in a pretty literal sense in that one. Right. And I... Let me rephrase that. No, no, no. This Mononoke wasn't people were diseased. The iron was the disease. The hate was the disease. So even still, I think it didn't quite touch into the eco-fascism because the princess represented how humanity and nature could coexist. And I forgot the boy's name. Uh, Taki... Uh, yeah his entire tribe was also you know isolated in more in touch with nature and he was also this forgiving connecting force um Mm. who came to correct it so i i still think it veered from the eco-fascism because it that's the goal of that the message of that was still Humanity and nature should coexist and not destroy the other, I think. That's an interesting point because I hadn't really, like, considered the fact that, like, uh, you know, none of that stems from his tribe, really, even though they actually... It's a really good point because his tribe even goes out and hunts. Like, they kill animals to eat and things like that, but they never Mm -hmm. cause the sickness. The sickness comes to them because of what's happening in iron town mm-hmm. so yeah that's that's that is a really good point that's a solid point about that um two things from my end now that we're talking about ashitaka yeah ashitaka that's right uh one i think whenever we talk about archetypes the 
princess archetype. I've always found this to be a little bit funny. I think it applies more to Ashitaka than it does to San. Uh, 100%. Yeah. Because when you think of the archetype of a princess, you think of someone who usually has some kind of mount that they ride around on. Could be a horse, but in this case, it's an elk. They almost always are soft-spoken but firm in what they have to say and try to use reason and peace before all else. Uh, but at the same time, they're brave. And also uses a bow a lot of time. That's a very token princess weapon. So that's just something I've always thought was kind of funny is that archetype just really fits Ashitaka more than anyone else. They also refer to Ashitaka as being beautiful and handsome a lot. That's true. I'm just saying. Huh. Just uh, but one other thing that I wanted to kind of go back to was the other side of saying people are a disease. It is a, almost always gets pointed to lower class people. And that's hmm. something that we're starting to see a lot <laughs> now. And that kind of ties back into what happened recently with our ice storms where it was you know people who suffered the most are always going to be the ones that are most vulnerable right. and so people are always <laughs> going to point the finger at the poor because they don't have nice eco-friendly things that are helping the environment but it's, they can't afford them so yeah that, right. that was my main point even if they did, even if they had those things, it's worth pointing out that they would still cut off their power first and still point the finger at them. I think it's worth just saying that even if everyone, all the poor people had all their houses remodeled some way and were using less energy, I think that they would still get scapegoated. Just Oh, 100%. That, that's mostly what I was trying to say, but I couldn't think of a good way to say yeah, it. Yeah, I, I got you. I wasn't necessarily trying to disagree or anything. I was just kind of adding that on to what you were saying. No, it's perfect. It encapsulated what I was trying to convey, but did not do a good job of. <laughs> uh -oh. All of those points, when people want to talk about when you leave Marxism, the what you mentioned earlier, Ishida, the idea of if somebody was to leave Marxism, that means that they're leaving all leftist thinking. There is an obsession with um, drawing those lines on what kind of leftist you are and I fall into a camp that finds it to be rather problematic to draw those firm lines there are some ways of thinking that are harmful regardless of where you stand on a spectrum certainly any that views uh, the most vulnerable people of a society as something expendable it's not acceptable right. sorry there's my there's my line in the sand um, <laughs> yeah no. but to think that your one way of belief is the only good way of belief the only right way is just perpetuating the same harm that a lot of other groups have and are currently instigating so it's just Marxism has its critiques, and it it should be critiqued. Maybe not necessarily dismissed, but if someone does not identify as a Marxist, it does not mean that they're not a leftist. And I th I think that's absolutely um, 
a point that I would like to make. Yeah, that's actually a something. I'm sorry. Was was did you have more to say? Uh, I can get back to it. It's not a biggie, and uh, if it's missed, it's fine. I was just gonna get on a soapbox for a second, so it's probably great you interrupted me. Oh <laughs> <laughs> I man, I kind of messed up. Then I love when people go on soapboxes. That's actually. What I was going to bring up is in the last episode, I kind of got on a soapbox about that myself. I uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm against the labels. I think labels are useful. Like, I refer to myself as an anarchist, even though if you were to write out all the things I believe, especially about how we would reach that world, most anarchists would say I am not an anarchist. Most most Marxist Leninists would probably say I'm not either. Um, but I do think labels are useful in that way of just kind of like shorthand. But I have always been, like, really against the dichotomy of, like, Marxist-Leninist and anarchist. Because, like I was telling Ethereal last week, I think that any realistic revolution, uh, not necessarily realistic, but any realistic revolution that would actually lead to a world worth building would require people of both of those schools of thought and people in between and people who maybe don't even identify as any of that. You know, I mean, it's it's going to require a wide range of human thought to actually successfully build a world that works for all of us. So just to put that yeah, out there. Yeah, I, I, think, I think I agree with you. Like, you are saying it in a far more eloquent way, and it would have taken me far too long to get to how you said it. <laughs> but I, I agree with that. I don't disagree with the idea of labels i just don't like, like when what people, you said yeah, yeah when it's a hard immovable thing right um because it is it is required uh in i i come from a social work world and there are all kinds of movements and certainly with the intersectionality and that concept that i have to be aware of involved with and care about however and so, like, let's just equate that to just being a leftist in general. You know, like, yeah. there's all of these issues and all of these concerns that impact all of my clients. And specifically, I work in mental health with children. My priority is the mental health, mental and behavioral health of these kids. That will touch on education, that will touch on physical, that will touch on home and society, like, community uh, that will touch on economics based on where the parents are economically. Is the kid fed regularly? Transportation, you know, it just, it'll touch all of these other worlds that we can, that we all care about. But my focus, my priority is the mental health component. And I think that to expand that to the political idea, you could be a Marxist-Leninist, you could be... Um, environmentally focused you could be uh anarchist you can be communist you can be all these different sub genres but they're still all the same thing you're just prioritizing a different thing than other people and i think they're all needed to solve the problem as well it's just i don't know where i was going i kind of lost the end like you we all just agree on the same shit we're just prioritizing different shit <laughs> right <laughs> it's just, that's, yeah I'm, go ahead ethereal I was just going to say that there's times where it feels like people are too busy pointing fingers at the other whenever there's like one slight difference in opinion between the two of them. You know, it's that joke that I told the other day in the podcast of nobody hates a leftist more than another leftist. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. And yeah, and I think that um I think that's a really good point about how like people's focus lies in different areas because um when I posted uh I posted our last episode in a Discord server and um some people were commenting on some of the things we talked about and one of the things we covered was class reductionism. And one guy actually uh I wouldn't go so far as to say he was defending the class reductionist mind state. But he was kind of explaining why the way his approach uh, would probably be described by most people as class reductionist. And it was kind of about how we need to focus on class because, like I said in that episode, one of the reasons you might have that mind state is because class uh, is kind of the great unifier. No matter what person you find that's been shit on by capitalism, even though they probably have specific identity-based things we all fall under the blanket of working class. So it's kind of like, okay, we'll focus on this one because it gets the most people. And I, I do understand that point of view, but I think that a lot of times the issue that comes about with that is like, you can focus on class and still be allied, allied with people who don't uh, a more identity, uh, identity based group. I mean, like honestly, one of the most one of the best leftist organizations to ever exist in this country was the Black Panthers. And they did focus on class in a way, but they were also their foundation was built around black identity. And like the idea that like, if there was the Black Panthers now that like class focused leftists shouldn't work with them because of that, like is ridiculous. <laughs> like obviously if the Black Panthers yeah. were around now, they would, they would be a, one of the most valuable allies the left could possibly have. So yeah. Or if they are at least around in the same capacity. I mean, right, still... yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I th One of my favorite little paraphrases of an encounter with the Black Panther Party, um, they, did you all know about the Big Disability Act sit-in that happened before the Disability Act was passed? I don't think I'm familiar with that. So I think it happened mostly in California. I'm not really great with history. Sorry. Um, this was before the Disability Act was passed. And a lot of individuals, mostly people who had been impacted, I think, by polio or other um, illnesses, and even some with genetic and uh, intellectual developmental disorders, they were protesting the fact that the government wasn't passing a disability act. And so they went to a, a Capitol building or at least government building in California and did a sit-in, which was a huge ordeal for many of many of the people who participated. Cause these were people with significant needs, um, physical needs who were doing a sit-in. So they would have to have, uh, assistants come in and administer medications through tubes like on the floor of these capital buildings is it, it was a huge thing what i also think was kind of funny is that they tried to get them to leave by cutting off the phone lines but when people know sign language you don't need the phone lines <laughs> <laughs> so people were signing to people outside to say like we need these supplies Oh, that's beautiful. Um, I love that. Isn't that, that is amazing. Fucking amazing. Yeah. Whenever I heard that, I was like, this is the best. Like, that's so cool. But 
one of the things that happened during that was the Black Panther Party came out with supplies. And they were there to support and stand with protesters because of the idea of intersectionality. The idea that you have to stand with other people who are being actively marginalized and actively disenfranchised and actively ignored by politicians. You have to stand with other people, even if their priority is different. Right. Because that's true unification at that point. If you go stand with them, they'll stand with you. Like, any victory is a victory well served. Like, that's just and that's kind of where I stand. That's kind of what's kind of, uh, it's really hard to kind of parse through the differences in, like, identity politics the way we're talking about them right now and the way they get presented by, like, more uh, liberal thinkers because I think that in a way a lot of times you know it's the same ideas we're talking about the exact same things but it's almost like when a lot of times when I hear liberals talk about this kind of thing it it feels like they're doing it in more of a divisive way of like that person can never understand what you're going through because you guys have different identities and I, I don't think that that's helpful to to any type of movement because I mean I don't even know how to put it because I feel like I'm going to end up saying some goofy sounding shit about like, you know, we're all the same on the day. And that's not what it is. But we do all have common ground and we, we're all we're all being suppressed by the same system, I think, is what I'm really getting at here is that like right. we're not being suppressed in the same way. That's not how it is. You know, identity is going to play a major role in how we're all affected by the system. But the power structure that is causing that damage is all coming from the same place and to to reframe i think what you're saying i will not understand the specific development and struggles that come from being a trans individual but i do know that the system is not working actively for them so to say that to discount my allyship um because it's not a lived experience I have does seem to be more divisive than helpful. I will not. Now there are behaviors that come with being an ally that I should follow more so than others. For example, not speaking the story of trans identity, leaving that to the people who live it. Um, But correct me if I'm wrong. What I think you're saying is when people try to exclude those who will want to stand with because they are not of the group can cause more damage than just trying than just saying like you also know this is wrong please join my numbers is that what you're kind of getting I think at? that's yeah i mean uh, yeah yeah that's it's pretty much what i'm getting at. just like i feel like yeah. there is kind of a way that 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 it's being spun I, I don't i don't know if i want to say it's intentional but i think that uh for certain people it might be somewhat semi semi intentional and of course i'm not talking about just like regular everyday people but i do think that there is kind of a promotion of an idea a version of identity politics that kind of pushes this idea that if a person isn't the same identity as you they're not going to i don't know if understands the right word because like you said we can't understand to, We're not uh, going to support we, you. We can't understand it in the same way they have because they've actually experienced right. it. 
Right. That's a given. Like I, I, there's I like no... to just put the quotes around the word "get." You're not gonna get it. Yeah. Like it's yeah. Yeah. It's. But but you'll know it's wrong. But exactly. Yeah. You know it's wrong, and you and you might even. Uh, I don't know. There's probably a way in which you can kind of like you know frame it for yourself, but you're never going to fully have the same grasp on it that a person who actually lived through it did. But that doesn't mean that you can't. Uh, relate to them and and understand in a way of like, I, I see that what's happening to you is not what should be happening to you. The same system, even though it's not oppressing me in the same way it's oppressing you, it's it's done things to me and we should we should be a lot allied in our fight against it, regardless of our of our differences, which I think that there's a certain brand of that that, that pushes against that and doesn't want to see people. Um, allied with each other they want people divided up into categories to where they don't intermingle with each other you know what i mean if that makes sense yeah no i do um i do i have also seen that there are people who don't understand that it's rude to falsely equate experiences um and so i i hope that the behaviors that kind of you know when people buck up against outsiders trying to reach out and say like what you're doing is wrong i want to stand with you um i i'm hoping that that resistance only stems from well-intentioned people fucking up that outreach (laughs) (laughs) rather than just being like i'm this identity so i have a chip on the shoulder so like i think it's just very reactionary to other people who just didn't understand what that what they were doing was rude um but that's getting really into like hair splitting for this and but is also a perspective i try to have because it makes it less personal for me like when somebody is turned off by me or doesn't want me to be there it just if i go you know what Somebody else probably burned this bridge. Just going to chill out until they realize I'm someone trustworthy. <laughs> right. And that's that's why I clarified. I'm not really talking about like normal on the ground people because I can kind of yeah. see more how those certain things develop. You know what I mean? I, I get it. Yeah. But like, yeah. but I think that there's more of a, uh, you know, you know, the, the ideas, the ideology that people hold, you know, it, it all kind of pours down from the people at the top. And I think that there's people at the top that present things in a way to help. Uh, oh God, what am I trying to say here? Divide. <laughs> yeah. Not just divide, but yeah. to, to kind of, uh, to it's part of the oppression em- emblazon that feeling, like make it stronger yeah. than it would be otherwise. Like not only do you feel that way, but you're a hundred percent right. Feeling that way. And like, you probably just shouldn't trust those people. You know, it's not, I'm not holding against anyone like, uh, for example, you know, a trans person who just doesn't have the patience with explaining to another cis person why their identity is valid. Like, of course, of course you feel that way. Like, why wouldn't you feel that way if you've explained it to this many people in your life and most of them still didn't understand and just stuck to what they're saying? Like, I'm not blaming anyone for feeling that way at this point. Like, I just want to clarify that i'm not talking about normal working class people so much as just the overarching ideology behind okay. it okay yeah okay i think i get what you're saying now but this is total also this is why the revolution needs cuddles 
Yeah. Because like yeah. <laughs> that idea of antagonism and divisiveness between leftist groups or even any anti-oppression groups. Um, on a side note, it is very, very strange. It was very strange for me, at least when I was working with folks with disabilities. Um, I met a gentleman who voted for the conservative government in my state. Uh, and then he was also lambasting the poor develop or disability services in the state. And I was like, <laughs> those things are related, <laughs> but like we could agree on one of these two things. So <laughs> I'm going to group you in the pro disability rights group, even though you're not a leftist. It was very, right. anyway, so that's why I'm going to say like anti-oppression groups because it's a weird crossover. Um, Anyway, the anti-oppression machine, they're the ones who are telling us to be divided and we need to cuddle to reunite. Um, and I will lead the cuddle party. Like, Everyone come, just needs a big hug. Let's just be friends. Class struggle and class cuddles forever. <laughs> There's the, the... There the, we go. That's yeah. the first post-COVID activity. <laughs> So uh, that's going to be my sign. So it's funny, like I missed my chance to bring this up at the beginning, but uh, I wanted to ask you guys about one thing that totally didn't relate to what we were going to talk about tonight before we got started, because I figured once we were on the Ghibli subject, it would probably last the whole show, but that's not what happened. So I guess this would be an opportunity for me to mention it. It's kind of out of nowhere. It's not really related to what we were just talking about, but it is something that since it's happened this week. I wanted to get everyone's thoughts on. Uh, so uh, Joe Biden uh, dropped some bombs in Syria. And there's been a uh, what to me is a bizarre, bizarre response from liberals on Twitter, which just like I've seen stuff where like people have uh, compared the people who died in it to bugs like they're like. Yeah, of course he didn't mention it. You know, when you swat a mosquito, you don't announce it first. I've seen people say stuff like, I'm so happy that we didn't have to hear about this on Twitter. You know, referencing Trump and his whole braggadocious, like, yeah, I dropped a big bomb thing. You know, they're yeah. like, I'm so happy that Biden doesn't do the same thing. And I've seen a lot of this this kind of stuff where it's just like, thank God that it's not Trump dropping these bombs and it's Biden now. And just like. I mean, what do you? What are your guys' thoughts? So on I'm that? gonna take the the first lead on this one, if that's okay. Aaron. Yeah, go for, go for it. I think that's something that I always see, and especially with centrists and liberals, when it comes to liberal presidents being in power, is they love to use the excuse that the president doesn't actually have that much power. So they're not responsible oh, man, I've for seen what's that happening. so much this week. Yeah. So but here's the, here's the kicker. They, these are the same people who have spent the past four years, and rightfully so, calling Trump out for all the terrible things he does. Because while our president isn't the end-all, be-all power structure, the president does have a lot of power that they can use. And also, in a similar way, the thing that you pointed out where people are like, well, at least it wasn't Trump, you know, so it's not that bad. It is the same way where we're talking about 
there are still kids in cages on our border and they're just changing it to be called what was it child facility centers yeah migrant child facilities or something like that yeah but it's the same thing they just liberals love to take a concept gussy it up a little bit and then resell it back and be like yeah, this sophisticated uh, person is telling me that this is different. So obviously it is, even though there's actually no difference involved here. But yeah, that's that's kind of my take, is that quite common whenever this kind of thing happens, depending on who is in charge, is the reaction that you will get from especially the liberal side, but also obviously the conservative side as well. Well, the conservatives, like, the thing with them is that they just kind of own the fact that they don't give a shit about people in the Middle East, you know, and they just... Right. You know, exactly. they they kind of just, like, which I'm not trying to say that's a good thing at all. That's bad. That's horrible that they Terrible, think like yeah. that. But, like, you know, it's almost that whole... I keep going back to that reference made in episode two by Kadesh to the whole, the real danger. But when MLK said the real danger isn't the KKK member, it's the white moderate Mm-hmm. It's just like, God, I'd, I'd almost rather have like these conservatives who are like, I don't want Mexicans coming over here and I don't want Muslims taking over our country over like people who like pay lip service to caring about these people while completely being passive while bombs are dropped on them and they're thrown in cages. It's just like. And then acting superior about it. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. It. Yeah. And like they're, they're some yeah. sort of moral superiority tied into it. Uh, so I have a conservative family member and we get into very heated conversations about things. And this, this relates, um, you know what? I'm not even going to get into the nitty gritty of it. I'll just leave it at that. He always loves to throw Biden's actions in my face about like, look, he's doing the same things. Uh, nothing's changed. And I always love responding. I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just... Like, yeah, obviously. Yeah. I just wanted somebody in the presidency who has had a history of changing his vote in, in favor of policies I believe in. Uh, for example, he's voted against fracking. So, like... If given enough push, Biden has voted in favor of his voters. Uh, right. It's the Trump was a loose fucking can. Yeah. It, not even the lesser, the weaker of two evils. Like, oh, that's a good point. You know, I. The quieter of two evils, almost in a sense, too. Like, I, there's, I had no expectation that bombs weren't going to be dropped. It doesn't surprise me that it's quieter. And when I see the behaviors of people on Twitter and I see the people dehumanizing victims, uh, giving them the benefit of the doubt, I want it. I want to relate it to that idea of prioritizing different things. Um, they might prioritize other issues than war. But... They should also shut the fuck up and not comment on it if that's the case. Like, you don't have to say, at least I didn't hear about it. Like, it's still bad. You could just not, 
you if you don't want to hear about it you just don't have to comment on it like the dehumanization is not a good thing to do pretending that the bomb is wrapped in gl liberal glitter <laughs> is not a good thing to do like it's just yeah like it it's no different than conservative behaviors because he, like the example with the different quote unquote healthcare Trump was trying to introduce that was essentially just Obamacare with his name on it. Like it's the same stuff. You just, you go to your in group, but they're not really different political parties and it's the same bigoted actions from either side. I do also agree that I would prefer it if somebody came out and said that just straight up said they hated a group at the same time, I do appreciate having a figurehead who will at least say the words that's pro everybody. <laughs> like, it might be meaningless on a policy stance, but it, culturally, it could have the impact that I, I would prefer. So it's, I'm just not surprised that people are saying that. Like, I can kind yeah. of see that, yeah. I don't, yeah. I'd probably, if we had time to like get into this real, real deep, there's probably uh, some. I probably have some disagreements about some of the things involving, involving. Uh, I guess just the the democratic stance on a lot of those things, but I, I definitely see what you mean about like because I always bring up how they pay lip service to this stuff, but don't really mean it. But there is there is an effect from that. Like there's the. Uh, Especially with people that approve of that president, there's uh, there's research that showed that like uh, 41% of African-American voters uh, didn't support uh, gay marriage before Obama, who had a very high approval rating, obviously, in the African-American <laughs> community. When he came out for it, uh, that number went up to 59%. So there's definitely something to be said for a president who even on a completely artificial level speaks positively about those things because, I mean, what I said earlier about ideology bleeding down from the ruling classes, if they're standing for something positive in the public eye, that can definitely influence people's stances on those things. So I would agree. I would agree with that for sure. Yeah, it, it really makes it almost a more complicated thing. Um and I, I view a lot of it in various shades of gray, uh, even democracy and the value of democracy is, um, as someone who has needed laws to give me the same rights <laughs> that other people were born with, uh, I, I have very conflicted feelings about the institution. Um, yeah. And it is something when the, so. when there's something that you don't really have any real exhortation of uh, power over, it is kind of hard to be completely hardline on it anyway, because like, I mean, like the amount of, of influence we have over who is running this nation is so minuscule in the first place that it's kind of just like a, a crapshoot on what you should do anyway. That's yeah. Oh, good. I was just going to say it's all based on perspective, too. Uh, a lot of people, when they get disillusioned with voting, talk about it on a, nas like a national or federal level without acknowledging 
how much power a local vote could have on one's community or even one state, which can have significant outcomes. Um, I, I think we're all in the same state, but, uh, no, actually. Oh, okay. Okay. Are you guys in Kansas? Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. I just wanted to throw in a little bit of that Missouri, Kansas beef there. Just. Sorry. I'm not originally from here, so I don't know. I think I'm the only one originally from where I'm at, so. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to loop back around. Um, Take the, the beef and fry it up with some peppies and serve a nice little meal, so thanks for the beef. There peppies. you go, yeah. Uh, I was watching whenever the Democrat governor was elected for our state. I was watching county election results roll in. Mm-hmm. which is hilarious because I was at a Coheed and Cambria concert uh, and I was just like checking election results because I was so anxious about it. The Democratic governor won by a handful of votes in some counties, like by five votes, if not fewer, she wow. won those counties. So it's just like being one in eight, 80 million voters doesn't feel impactful, doesn't feel meaningful. But being one of the five voters who could who impacted a color change for a county has significant meaning. And so it's like I federally a lot of that stuff does roll downhill, but also federally the government has been trying to put a lot of more responsibility on states and local governments. And yeah. so it's like changing my perspective has also added more gray to the process because if my vote can seriously impact the housing laws in my community which could lead to less disenfranchisement of vulnerable populations like that's a lot of power that doesn't have any impact on the military budget on a national level though so it's really like just another gray yeah it's just yeah that perspective and Again, that prioritization <laughs> of particular beliefs. And that's topics, why, I like, so. uh, both of you did both of you vote for Biden, or are you wanting to? I don't. You guys don't have to answer that, obviously. <laughs> I so I I wrote in for Bernie Sanders, which uh, again I know a lot of people will find very silly. And I know people- a quick question because I don't know: Is Kansas a red state, blue state, or swing state? It's red traditionally, state. yeah. Yeah. It's a swing state? Red state. Oh, it's a red state. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, see, I uh, I didn't write in Bernie, but I voted for Howie Hawkins. But I think that if I wasn't sure Missouri was going to go red, I may have, you know, <laughs> voted for Biden and then went to the bathroom to throw up afterwards. <laughs> but being in right. a state that I knew my, you know... <clears throat> Not to be a nihilist about it or anything, but my vote literally doesn't doesn't count here on that level on pre- on the president specifically, because there's so many Republican voters here. You know, just I can throw in, you know, it, you get what I'm saying. No matter who I vote yeah. for, it's yeah. it's going the same way. But um, down the ticket, I did tend to uh, vote mostly Democrat. There was a couple uh, positions. There was another Green Party member running for that I went ahead and tried to, you know, throw the vote behind them on to see if, if we could get that anywhere. But 
Yeah, mostly down the ticket, I most I pretty much voted all blue except for one or two Green Party members. But then on president, I was like, well, it's a red state anyway. And kind of, I was hoping, my biggest hope, the reason why, because, I mean, voting green isn't really any more meaningful than voting anything else if your state's going red. But, like, I, my hope was that enough people might vote that way that uh, if we hit the, I think it's 5% threshold, then they're able to... Uh, getting the debates in the next presidential cycle they're able to do all these things which you didn't get anywhere close to that but that was kind of my reasoning behind it was because i wanted to see a third option maybe the next time around but right didn't happen and it's looking like if we ever do get a third option it's probably going to be the libertarian party as opposed to the green party (sighs) unfortunately (laughs) yeah yeah i know it's god um in a quick note for me, I was very much in the same boat where I, I went to cast my vote for my local and state elections. That's why I went to vote. Uh, I don't, I obviously, I know lots of people that voted for Biden. I don't blame them for that. I'm not saying that was the wrong thing to do. I personally just did not want to vote for Biden. And if I thought that my vote would change the outcome of that i would have kind of in the same boat as you ashita but the main reason why i went to vote was to make sure that i could impact my local and state government yeah Yeah. to me that's what's the most important yeah um i voted biden out of sheer self-defense um that's all the explanation I need to give. (laughs) But it was also mostly for the local and state representatives as well. Since everyone did vote, did, uh, did in Kansas, did you guys notice anything about like, um, Oh, what's the, so there were a lot of positions on the, uh, ballot where there was only one option in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Did you have a lot of those? Yep. Yeah. That's that's kind of scary, right? Like Yep. But not only is it scary, it's kind of uh uh there's a strange hope to it because I'm kind of like, man, if I ran for sheriff or something like that (laughs) i could potentially win because like there's just like (laughs) it's not like there's any other like i mean there was a there was some uh oh god i wish i could remember what this exact story but there was someone who ran as like a a communist for sheriff they (laughs) they their platform was about how they were a satanist a communist just like everything that you would never imagine a sheriff being mm-hmm. and they won. I wish I could. He ran unopposed. That. Oh, that's so funny. Well, so I think that, I think that they actually, this, I may be getting mixed up on some of the details here, but I believe they actually ran, uh, on the ballot as a Republican. They did 100%. Okay. So that's right. Yeah. So they ran as a Republican and yeah, I think they were either unopposed or there was only one other person, but they won and they, uh, they became sheriff on a platform of communist Satanism, which is just beautiful. <laughs> Terrifying. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's kind of on that note, though, in this, that, my story's not as funny, but it's a little bit scary. There were quite a few positions that ran unopposed in my county 
but on the Democrat ticket, which was a little ominous because my area is very liberal um, comparatively. Yeah. And it meant that some people were running who were actually pretty staunch Republicans were running on the Democrat name for the appearance. Mm. And they ended the one person in particular that I'm thinking of was running for sheriff and he lost. He actually lost to a more uh, left leaning candidate, um, which I thought was hilarious because that <laughs> I think even that person was like, well, I'm going to lose. And then he came out with the win and I was like, oh, neat. I haven't followed it since then because life happened. But uh, <laughs> right. uh, I, I did notice that about the singular options in my area, at least were uh, all Democrat ticket and i thought that was a little nefarious for um similar reasons they just it's like they read the community and were like this is how i'm gonna endear myself to voters uh except everybody did it (laughs) and the community paid enough attention or at least the voters did paid enough attention that they voted for the uh the one who actually represented the values the closest so So. a a question i have that uh for both of you that kind of ties into all this because it's a worry of mine so i don't consider myself an accelerationist at all i think that if accelerationism was going to work uh, that's what would have happened when covid happened i think covid kind of disproved the accelerationist position which uh if anyone uh, isn't clear on what it is it's just like the idea that we should amplify the issues and uh and uh, problems with like capitalism and neoliberalism and all that in order to lead to a quicker revolution the idea is like if things are bad enough people will revolt quicker that's Which basically the case. yeah i don't think that that's right yeah. but i i do i wouldn't say that i agree with that at all but the I do harbor some fears, I think, somewhat of the opposite of uh, of a liberal presidency leading to a lot of complacency amongst people. I mean, you know, uh, I guess like an example would be, I mean, kind of in Nazi Germany, it was, you know, right before Hitler's rise to power, they had like a centrist, slightly more left than the other wing group in power. I mean, that's kind of what gave rise to it was, you know, this, I don't know if you guys have heard of the ratchet effect, which is where (laughs) like the Republicans crank us to the right and the Democrats block movement back to the left. And so I do have some fears about that. Sometimes it does kind of bother me that like, I, I do fear that the, the liberals will allow for something like that to happen. But I I don't really really know. I don't really know what the alternative is because like, obviously the Republicans aren't going to be the answer to that because chances are when we get our Hitler figure that rises up, it's probably going to be someone in the Republican party. I mean, it's just, what do you guys, do you guys have any ideas for what could possibly be, what are our options for getting out, out of this situation? I don't want to go too deep into this conversation on my end because I want to save it for a later episode. 
Okay, that's uh, fair. But I will just give a little teaser in saying that this is why I think Jujutsu Kaisen works so well. Oh, oh, now I'm excited. <laughs> uh, I don't want to go too deep because it's late. <laughs> um, That's fair. We are getting but, kind of in there. Yeah, I will agree about complacency is going to cause more harm. Um, and I think... This this may be a lot of my perspective working with marginalized populations on individual levels, but I think kind of as a whole, as a system, as a country, we just need to acknowledge that we have this shared traumatic event and acknowledge how that's impacting us now and will impact us in the future and admit that we are still struggling with traumatic events in our history that were have gone completely unresolved and just work towards rectifying those, whether that's restitution or some other um, activity. As I, I think, I hope, I hope that kind of healing from those, we can move to a more kind of compassionate and um, healthy community that can effectively and constructively reflect on itself and grow. Okay. Um, before we wrap up, I do want to, I guess, so this is kind of, uh, in a way, this is a little bit of a, a rewording of the last question, but just like to kind of sim simplify it and just like, let's real quickly, Real quickly touch on it if possible. Uh, I guess I guess the, the best way to sum up what my, my question was is do you guys think it would work out better? Do you think it's more of a viable option to build our own our own like party that could like contend with the two we have now, or would it make more sense to try to like infiltrate the Democratic Party and essentially shove it leftward? I if I may, I think it's honestly, from my point of view, I don't see why you can't take a two pronged attack and do both. I think you take politicians uh, that are popular and not leftist, but the closest thing to leftist that we have, which would be people like, you know, Bernie Sanders, AOC, Elon Omar, yeah. et cetera. But at the same time, you still work towards the goal of creating our own party because the the first part is not sustainable. They are not going to make large systemic changes. At least I don't think so. I don't think it's possible the way our system is built. Uh, be, or not that our system is built. The way that party is handled, I should say, instead. I, I think that prevents them from making a lot of the changes that they would like to see. But they can do a lot of damage control and still help slowly move those gears forward. While at the same time, we can start working to build a different party that more represents, or not even a different party, but just help unite our views under a party of our own rather than trying to just use the Democratic Party as a vehicle. Yeah. Okay. Ditto quote marks. 
Right on. <laughs> yeah, I think I agree with all that. My, uh, I guess my main thing is that uh, I don't know. Like I see like a lot of a lot of obstacles either way. It's going to be hard making a third viable party, and like having seen what happened with Bernie, I'm not sure how viable I think it is going the infiltrate the democrats thing here but i mean it's an uphill battle it's one we're fighting and it's i think it's all going to start with us just kind of uh getting out there and talking to people and kind of building the the movement so to speak before it's gonna come to any of that anyway so yeah all right well uh is there anything else uh from either you two that we need that we want to go over before we close out tonight Aaron, if you want to plug your podcast again. Yeah. Uh, again, thank you for having me here. This was really invigorating. And I really enjoyed being in these conversations as much as I stumbled and stuttered and uhed my way through them. Thank you. Um, again, I'm Aaron from Girls Talk Comics, a podcast where it is me and my co-host just talking comics. Sometimes old stuff, sometimes current stuff, and now a book club. You can find us on Apple iPodcasts, whatever it is, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Twitter and Facebook. Right on. Come chat with me. Well, thank you for coming on, Aaron. I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that Ariel invited you. This has been a great conversation from my point of view. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Later. Bye. Bye.